So I'm thinking about our previous recording session. I think we did some good catching up banter that we can use. So I don't think we necessarily need to do that unless there's um, something else that sort of happened in the last week and a half or so that you feel like talking about on on air. Not so much, as long as it gets in there that I was ID'd at the liquor store. Welcome, listeners. This is Dear Reader. It's a podcast about what me and my wonderful friend Emily have been reading in the last month. Hello. How's it going? I am Michael. <laughs> I'm Mike. I'm Emily. Uh, hi, Michael. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm, I'm wondering why I tried to change things up with the opening, and uh, I don't know if it was successful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's only so many different ways you can say the same block of words. It's true. Um, I am also kind of battling off a head cold, so if I sound more nasal than normal, that explains why. <laughs> how's how's life? Pretty good. Uh, one of the kids is full-time preschool, so I have more time. I've read three books! Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I'll probably mostly talk about one, but... Um, yes. Yeah. No, I read three books, and the other one is sleeping most of the time. Um, not eating, but, you know. Ah, well. One thing at a time. But you asked me how I was. I don't know if I have a self outside my children. <laughs> well, I mean, that's one of the journeys of uh, of this podcast, I guess, is yeah. to sort of peg out a little bit of space for you. Exactly. Yeah, I, I've just, I realized you asked me how I was doing and I immediately launched into how my kids were doing. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, raising children is a large project that you're undertaking right now. Oh, so. so good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I am, other than having my cold... Uh, I, <laughs> I don't know if I want to bring this up on the mic or not. I guess I should. So like, I'm preparing for like a bodybuilding competition in November. Yes. It's the first one I've ever done. I don't like to talk about it because I, I'm nervous about it. And I feel like if I, if I end up, if something goes wrong and I end up not doing it, then I'll feel foolish. Aww. So I'd rather like do it and then be like, Hey, I did it. Um, but it's starting to get difficult in terms yeah. of like the diet and the exercise and whatnot because you have to like get yourself into this very like extreme and very temporary condition. So I've got about nine weeks left. So my I I, I some days I have about ten grams of sugar, which is like very little. Other days it's more like twenty five or thirty. If if I have a piece of fruit that day, I think I have more than that in my morning coffee. <laughs> The average Canadian has 110. I looked yeah, it up. Yeah, <laughs> I'm probably above average that way. But it, you might want to check out this movie I saw last week. It's called yeah. Britney Runs a Marathon. Oh, okay. And it's really good. It's about this, this you know, kind of girl. She parties too much, she drinks too much, she eats too much. She doesn't exercise. Uh -huh. And she her doctor tells her she needs to lose weight. Uh, not because she's overweight, but because she has high blood pressure and other worrying symptoms. Yeah. Um, it's not a fat shamey movie at all. I want to get that out of the way. Mm. Right out of the bat, because it's um it's it's really good. I was surprised how good it was. But anyway, she decides to start running, and then she decides to run a marathon, and it's about her journey. And yeah. it's probably one of the more realistic person does exercise movies I've ever seen. Oh, um, interesting. For anyone who doesn't know, I used to do a lot of distance running. I never ran a marathon, but I ran a local race called the Cape to Cabot. 
which is a 20K from Cape Spear to St. John's, and Runner's World called it the most difficult sub-marathon in the world. So it, it's, There's a lot of ele- like oh, a, lot a lot of, of ups hills. and downs. A lot yeah. of hills. If you're not familiar with St. John's, hills. Yeah. But any, and it but, finishes with you climbing a really dramatic hill. A very dramatic one. <laughs> Although it's actually the fourth st- biggest hill. In that race. Wow. Wow. I know. You don't think about it because nobody walks to Cape Spear. So you no. don't. Why would you? <laughs> <laughs> you don't realize in the car how crazy those hills are. Indeed. But my point is, this is, I have experience in running training and endurance training. And this movie is so, so good. Mm. So good. It's, it's not just like, oh, she, they play some spunky music and she turns her life around. It's, yeah. It's yeah. a lot more than that. Yeah, because when you're training for a big event like that, like it sort of structures your life for the months leading up to it. So. Exactly. And it talks about how, you know, this affects her relationships. It talks about how, if, like, they show her doing well and they show her doing poorly and they show her making good choices and making bad choices. And, I mean, without giving too much away, she she becomes fat shamey and you kind of begin to realize where her own problems began and she kind of loops around. It, mm. It's that's a bit of a roundabout way of saying it, but it, it's really good. It's very smart. It's been so long trying to get this recorded. I read another book I'm really excited about. All right. Well, tell me about it. The book is called My Sister, the Serial Killer. Oh, that's a great title. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. I've been hearing about this book for like a year. It's um, by Oyinkin Braithwaite. Braithwaite? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I pronounced either right. Um, she's Nigerian, um, although she grew up partly in the UK. This is her first book, but she's, uh, been, she's won awards for her poetry and short stories. Mm-hmm. And this book has gotten buzzier and buzzier as time go on, goes on. I've seen it, you know, all over bookstagram and everything, but I was really surprised by what it was actually like. I was thinking this was getting a lot of attention in sort of a Gone Girl sort of way, mm-hmm. you know, a th- another thriller about women, you know, we all love true crime and murders and everything like that. Not all of us, but, you know, there's kind of become a bit of a stereotype about the bloodthirsty female consumer of literature. <laughs> I didn't know that stereotype, but it's kind of delightful. Oh. But go on. Yeah, no, there's there's a bunch, um, you know, Gone Girl, Girl on the Train. There's usually girl in the title. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, then it was short, it was long listed for the Booker. Oh wow! But not short listed. But you know, anyway. But as I said, I was this book. It's very short. It's only about two hundred pages. Many of the paragraphs are many. Of the, many of the chapters are short. I guess she has that like economy of language that so many poets learn. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Not something I have. <laughs> <laughs> Lovers of Victorian literature yeah. and like concision of language. Yeah. She's, <laughs> Super concise. You do not get any extraneous detail. But it's basically the story of these two sisters, an older one and a younger one. And they're ladies of reduced means in Nigeria. Like they were once in part of a powerful family. They still have a huge house, but they don't have as much money. She's The eldest is a nurse. The youngest seems to be some sort of uh, fashion designer slash influencer or something. But the younger one has, at the start of the novel, killed at least three men. Hmm. And her sister has helped her clean them up. And it's we're at the point where the sister can no longer pretend that she believes her sister's acting in self-defense. Mm. Yeah, so the main the elder sister is Coretti, uh, K-O-R-E-D-E. 
and the younger is Ayula, A-Y-O-O-L-A, and they live with their mother. The younger sister is exquisitely beautiful. The elder sister is not. So the younger sister is attracting a lot of men. This, the mom just, you don't get a lot of the mother. She just wants both of her daughters to get married. When we open up, we start with bleach. She's she's bleaching blood out of a bathroom. Um, Kareti is, as her sister sits nearby. And basically, this is the third boyfriend that she's helped her sister dis- dispose of. And each time her sister said the story, it was like, oh, he came at me. He was so jealous. He was so possessive. He tried to beat me. And But at the third time, her sister's, all right, now, why, why did you even have the knife in the bathroom? Because she's using her father's old knife. Like, it's not just a kitchen knife. It's a knife knife. But what this fa- book is really about is about family obligations. Because Kareti and Ayula do not always get along very well. They don't have anything in common. And it's going to be a bit spoilery to say, but Ayula begins dating the man uh, Kareti is in love with. But at no point does Kareti ever think about not even just not turning her sister in. She never even considers not helping her not covering up her lies, not helping, like literally helping her carry a body, wash blood at no point is she. So it's about like, as much as she struggles with what she has to do and what she's feeling, her sister always comes first to her own detriment. I mean, we leave the situation somewhat unresolved. It's almost like just sort of a, a couple weeks in the life of this bizarre situation. And maybe there'll be more, and maybe there have been more that we don't even know about because she goes away with a boyfriend for a little while. And when she comes back, he's died of a drug overdose. Her sister is totally sociopathic as well. Like, Kareti has to keep reminding her not to post on Instagram. While his sister is, like, pleading, is, is doing that thing where she pleads with um, the public for any information. You know, he wouldn't have just disappeared because they don't even have a body. And they are briefly suspected. The police do come and take her car, but she has been that thorough. There's a lot about Kareti's thoroughness and professionalism as a nurse that kind of plays over here. And the nurse, too, being sort of a caretaking kind of position. But, yeah, it's um, it's fascinating. It got me wondering how far I'd let, because, you know, my brother and I are very close. Mm-hmm. Uh, it got me wondering how far I'd let that go. <laughs> Yes. I mean, one body, sure. <laughs> Two, yeah, I don't know. Three, <laughs> four, five. Mm-hmm. You know, how how far do you let these things go? Yes. She also doesn't seem to notice that she's totally implicated herself. Like, she knows she could be arrested. Mm-hmm. But she seems more concerned. Like, obviously, if she goes to the police after body number five, they're going to have other questions for her. Right. But that's not part of what she's doing. What she's doing is what she feels like her duty is to take care of her sister the same way she helps her sister bake a cake, the same way she gives her sister a ride. You know, this is what you do for your kid sister. (laughs) So the way you've just described it, particularly with with that sort of like question about like how much is too much, uh, how how funny is this? Not very. <laughs> okay, because like, it could be like really darkly humorous, or it could just be like really like I mean, dark. There's, there's definitely moments of okay. the humor in it. Mm-hmm. 
it is more about the family dynamic. Right, right, um, right. There's some flashbacks <clears throat> to their childhood with their father. And their father was abusive, mm. seriously abusive to all, them and their mother. His death is a bit of a question mark as well because he hit his head. In front, Ayula and Kareti were there, and I, I went back and forth a few times, and I don't think it was ever properly resolved on whether one or either or both have killed them. Mm. Killed, you know. I feel like it could have been any one of those situations. Right. It it certainly seems that the father's death, possible murder, was the the jumping off point. Right. Right. And hmm. it, because he would, this happened when. <clears throat> the younger sister was 14, Ayula was 14, and he was going to give her to one of his business associates and all that entailed. And Kareti being older, like Ayula didn't want to go. She was scared in a childish sort of way, like as a child, not really understanding what was happening. Kareti being older was like, this is not happening. This is happening. This is, you know, and it's not even like this is happening over my dead body. It's like, this is not going to happen. Right. So she may very well have done it herself, even. Yeah, her sister remains a cipher throughout. Um, she doesn't seem even interested. Well, maybe not that she's not interested in knowing about her sister. Maybe she's afraid to know more about her sister. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you know, I also have a brother that I'm quite close to. And in addition to your sort of like, the idea like how much help would i give <laughs> which is is fair like it like you don't know till you're in these crazy situations like how far you might go yeah um and but, it's fairly clear the first one she totally believed the story yeah yeah exactly if if there was a very believable story mm-hmm. kind of like this guy was abusing me or whatever or like you'd be like yeah okay like i get it <laughs> like <laughs> i mean that sounds like I'm condoning murder. No, <laughs> but like, I, I think we know what you're saying. It's like yes. there's, there's, we would go above and beyond for certain people in certain situations. Yes, it's like, well, I wish you had found some way to use your words. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but like, additionally, kind of the idea, like about this um, abusive father, and as an older sibling, both of us are older siblings, and. Like, I'm sure you felt this sometimes when the older sibling protective instinct is engaged. It's remarkably powerful. It is. It definitely is. Yeah. And it it, it comes through. Like I said, they're not even though they're not close. Like there's this mention one time that her like she's in her career in a room and Ayula comes in with her laptop and she's just watching TV on her laptop and she doesn't invite Kareti to join her or anything, but she's just hanging out in her room because that's what you do <laughs> when you live with your sibling. You just wind up in the same room. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's that kind of closeness, you know? It's that kind of relationship. I think anyone with a sibling w- would feel the tug here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't know that I want you to give away the ending, but... Um, I do want to know the ending now. <laughs> it's it's very good. Well, like I said, if you want to pick it up yourself, it's two hundred pages. And yeah, fairly mm-hmm. short chapter. I was, I actually had a friend over today, um, a mutual friend, Micah, and 
I had to like go off with the baby for a little while. Mm-hmm. And when I came back, she was reading it and she took it with her. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. That's a good advertisement. <laughs> yeah. No, it's really good. I mean, yeah. I told her she could, obviously. But, yeah, 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 yeah. She didn't uh, steal it. <laughs> but yeah, she, she saw it. She picked it up. She started reading it. She took it home. <laughs> mm-hmm. I yeah. love I love moments like that. Mm-hmm. That's like uh, we were actually visiting our friend Beth today and uh, she had a pi- a small pile of books, which... I didn't even realize we had lent to her over the years, but they were all our books, which she was returning. And there was a a collection of Lydia Davis short stories, and I picked it up because many of Lydia Davis's short stories fit on one page. Some of them are short as a sentence. I mean, others of them are like more like typical length. And I was just flipping through to find the really, really short ones to like read them. And it was like, ah, I like, I love Lydia Davis's writing, and I didn't even realize that this book was gone, because if you've read a book and it's just on your shelf, you don't necessarily look at it every day. No, but yeah. unlike you, apparently, I am very conscious when I've let somebody a book. <laughs> I, there are two books I never got back, one when I was 14 and one when I was 23. Yeah, which ones? And I, I think about them. Which two? One was Summer Sisters by Judy Bloom. Fabulous, fabulous book, or at least I thought so when I was 16. Mm-hmm. No, 14? How old was I? Young. Um, but I think I would. Judy Bloom's safe bet. Yeah, I, and, think, I think so. <clears throat> yeah, we've talked about her before. Yeah, yeah. She's great. Um, the other one was, oh, Buddy who wrote um, Life of Pi, his second uh, book. Ian Martell. Yeah, he, his second book was about somebody who... Was it a boy who becomes a girl, a woman or a woman who becomes a boy? Like, naturally. It wasn't, like, a tran- necessarily a transsexual thing. Although, I guess, obviously, metaphorically, probably was. Yes. But, like, literally just slowly begins it, to transform gender. It was like a gender. Virginia Woolf Orlando sort of thing? I a, guess so. I haven't actually read Orlando. So oh, yeah. Well, or, Orlando is a... Uh, it's... it's the the film is great. I've actually not even read the book, but uh, it, it's basically a a boy is granted immortality by Queen Elizabeth I near the end of her life, um, and he at some point a couple of hundred years in, I guess sometime in the nineteenth century, is kind of like becomes a woman, and yeah. it's just a thing that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like that, and it was a boy to a woman too. And now that I'm thinking about it. Anyway, liked it a lot, lent it to a friend. She went back to Ontario, I think. Mm. She was like a classmate friend, you know, like the kind of friendships you make when you're that age and they're like super intense, but they only last for six months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of those. And I never got it back. Um, Now I am aware that one of my... We weren't even actually all that close, although I think we had a lot of mutual regard. Like, I really liked this guy and respected him, and I, I guess he felt the same way about me. But, like, we never really, like, hung out one-on-one or anything. But he lent me um, Ghostwritten, which was David Mitchell's first novel. Ooh. And it's so good. And it's so weird I've never read anything else by David Mitchell um, because I really loved Ghostwritten. And mm-hmm. I understand Cloud Atlas in particular has a lot of similarities with it. Oh, I like Cloud Atlas a and, lot. Uh, I should at some point like investigate that. But I never gave him back Ghostwritten. <laughs> oh, and you every should now do again, that. I don't even know where he is now. <laughs> this is like 10 years ago. <laughs> I felt so bad about it. And, well, um, uh, not everyone holds grudges like <laughs> It's 
the sort of thing where like I sh- I should try and pay it forward. So like mm-hmm. my Lyd- Lydia Davis living with Beth for like the last like yeah. year and a half or whatever is it's, that's karma. That's just adjusting the scales. So about is it my sister the serial killer? The title? my sister the serial killer. So about my sister the serial killer. You say it's been sh- um, long listed for the Booker. Yeah, that's fantastic. This is the oh, first novel. Is. First novel. Yeah. Like her her Wikipedia page mm-hmm. is almost depressingly short. <laughs> like, How I old could, is she, do you know? She was born in eighty eight. Oh my god. I oh know. she's a baby. She's a baby. Uh, young, well, anyone younger than us is a baby. I mean, she's a thirty one year old woman. She's not <laughs> yeah. a baby. We're just old now. <laughs> yeah. No, she all like born in Lagos, moved to UK, moved back to Lagos, moved back to London, back to Lagos. Uh, she worked as an assistant editor in Kashio, Kashio in, in Nigeria. Hmm. Um, and they mentioned that apparently the producers of Baby Driver said they want to make a movie of this. Hmm. And that, and then there's her awards, and that's pretty much it. Wow. Yeah, 2014 shortlisted for Top 10 Spoken Word Artist in the Eco Poetry Slam. 2016 nominated for Commonwealth Short Story Prize. And then everything else is 2019. Wow. Best crime fin- thriller for the LA Times, shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction, longlisted for the Booker, and shortlisted for the 2019 Amazon Publishers Re- Publishing Readers Awards. Uh, do you know if the Booker shortlist is out yet? It is. Actually, I looked it up because I wanted to see if she made it, and it came out just a couple days ago. So we I guess should... she didn't make it. No, she didn't make oh, that. Well, longlisted is still an accomplishment for longlisted your first book. Longlisted is still pretty good. I mean, especially <laughs> considering this list... Like, this year also has some Sam and Rushdie and some Margaret Atwood on it. So, while we're talking about awards, we should um, acknowledge our countrymen. Absolutely. <laughs> there are two Newfoundlanders on the Giller Prize Award. Woo! The Giller Prize, for any non-Canadians listening, is, would you say it's Canada's biggest uh, novel award? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. For Canada? For sure. I mean, obviously, Canadians can win the Booker and whatever, yeah. but... Yeah, the only other one that's uh, in Canada that I would say gives it a run for its money might be the Governor General's. Yeah, but somehow not. I feel like those are more political. Mm, yeah. And less, like, it too, I think that's more about who the Governor General wants to have their picture taken yeah. with. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are two Newfoundlanders on the Giller Prize shortlist, and uh, one of them is mutual favorite. Michael Crummy. Yes. He's great. I actually went to the launch for this book last week. It's called oh. The Innocence. I and have it on hold at the library. I mean, it's not in I'm yet. not I'm like, sure you should read it. Oh, no. I'll tell you why. Because it's yeah. about two young siblings, a brother and a sister, and they're like okay. 9 and 11 or something, mm-hmm. who live with their parents in a really isolated cove in Newfoundland. And the parents die, and they're left to fend for themselves. Oh, no. Okay, no. No, no, no. This yeah. is like... That's like my worst nightmare, my children being alone and fending for themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like, it sounds like bad things happen to children in this book constantly, and I know uh, that's a trigger for you. Yeah, okay, we'll put, we'll put that aside. You can read it. <laughs> uh, I will tell you what I think about it. There's a good chance it's going to be what I talk about next time, because I have my copy here. Right. And it's quite short. He he specifically said he wanted to write a short book this time because all of his books, he always would like complicate things and be like, oh, we need we have a walk on character who has like one small function in the scene. Well, what's their backstory? How do they relate to everything? And he continually shut himself down this time and made it very spare and very to the point. I'm interested because uh, when I worked at the provincial archives, 
couple of years ago, he was coming in for a little while mm-hmm. and he was like, I can't remember what he was looking at, but we were, uh, we were all behind the desk like, what do you think he's researching? Well, Emily, you might be <laughs> pleased to know that he got the idea for this from a newspaper clipping he saw in the archives when he was doing that research. Which was about to, uh, a, a brother and a sister about that age who, like, had that experience. Oh, yeah. You should check the acknowledgments. I mean, I doubt I'd be in it. I don't think I worked with them very much. But I am in, surpri- uh, like, the acknowledgments of a surprising number of books. Mm-hmm. Well, as, really, you're as an archivist, like, <laughs> you are absolutely indispensable. <laughs> I like to think so. The other interesting thing I learned from this book launch is we had been speculating on a previous episode of this about how he was kind of due to have a new book out and wondering Mm -hmm. if there was one coming or what, he almost didn't write another book. Really? Why? He finished Sweetland, and he he was saying that he would always have these fallow periods after he finished a novel where he would take some time off and not, not start thinking about his next project right away. But in this one, like, he just kept not working on it. So he just was not working on anything new and time was going by and he was just making molasses buns and going to yoga classes and well, that's good too. someone from his publisher actually phoned him to be like what's up <laughs> <laughs> and he the way he told it it was kind of funny being like nice career you've got here shame if something were to happen to it <laughs> but like he 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 said that he like had a real trouble moving on to the next project after his previous novel which you can understand sweetland is such a monument such a book like it would be hard to move on to something new after that i mean i'd certainly i mean i don't want to put words in his mouth or anything or thoughts in his head but it's almost like could you possibly do anything better is that your great work i I think this is why maybe this novel is like a small novel like you're not trying to make another epic exactly yeah and the other thing is megan gale coles yay (laughs) yes small game hunting at the local coward gun club which i gave a rave review to a couple of episodes ago is also on the short list i bet that's why it's nominated Uh, it's it's all me (laughs) all you (laughs) (laughs) no all glory to megan coles because that is a that is an accomplishment of a book it is harrowing it's a gut punch but it's it's so powerful and it's so well executed and i mean i don't want to take anything away from michael crummy i'll be i'll be delighted if he wins but i'm kind of pulling for for small game hunting at the local coward gun club because Has a newfoundlander ever won the giller oh i know I don't Sweetland didn't. No. Uh, and, Gal- and we were both outraged. <laughs> I believe Galore won the Governor Generals. Yeah. Um, I know Lisa Moore's been nominated a number of times. Wayne Johnson's been nominated a number of times. Mm-hmm. Oh, plenty of nominations. For anyone who doesn't know, Newfoundland, for our tiny, tiny population, has a fairly robust literary yeah. community. It's, uh, it's really like starting in the mid-90s when it really sort of took off. But the last 25 years has been Newfoundland for an island that's about... Oh, I should include Labrador. <laughs> yes. So for a province that has about 525,000 people, the island has about 500,000. Um, we we do pretty good. And um, many of these novels have been like received international awards like Kathleen Winter, Lisa Moore, Michael Crummy. They've all like been longlisted or even occasionally shortlisted for fairly big international awards. Um, and we're very proud of them. And I think Megan Coles absolutely deserves to join those ranks. I hope that's game hunting is the book that everyone is buying because it won the big award in a few months time <laughs> so <laughs> we hope so yeah
so the book that I read this month is Middlemarch. And it's the only book I read this month, and that's fine because it's like 900 pages. <laughs> and we both have a history with Middlemarch. Uh, and I would imagine the listeners, if you're listening to a book podcast, you probably have heard of it, even if you haven't read it, because it's one of these super canonical books that is often on like at or near the top of lists of like best novels ever um and i was just thinking about like it's it's my favorite book and this is like my third time reading it which is a little bit bonkers when you think about yeah. it yeah i have only read it once and it was a very long time ago <laughs> but um i just i get so much out of it like i am you know i'm agnostic veering towards atheist which is also the case for george eliot the author I have a relationship to Middlemarch that I think is kind of similar to what some sort of thoughtful, not awful Christians might have towards the Bible. <laughs> like, There's so much in there which makes me think about myself and my life and the world and other people in the world and how to be a good person in the world. And it, it honestly feels like if you remove God from the equation, but you still want to give people a reason to be nice to each other, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's Middlemarch, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, very much vibes with uh, how I feel about things. Um, well, what do you remember about Middlemarch? Because you read it before me. I can remember you came to visit me in my little hometown uh, one summer, and you were carrying this big brick of a book with you. Yeah, I remember being a big brick of a book. What do I remember? Oh, I mean, I remember loving it. It Mm. was the sort of thing like, you're happy to spend that much time reading something? You know, like a lot of times you read these big bricks of the book. um, Moby Dick springs to mind. And there's sections where it's a bit of a slog. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, I got to power through this. When I read The Luminaries, the first chapter is 450 pages. And I plowed through that in two days because I was like, if I don't do this, I'll never do it. (laughs) But... Middlemarch was like, you could read that forever and that would be okay. Yeah. You know, it'd be like, it's like that person that you never get sick of hanging out with. Yeah. Because the narrator is like a character. Like it's yes. it's an omniscient narrator, but like it first happens about 60 or 70 pages in where the narrator uses a first person pronoun and addresses the reader directly. And it it feels like a friendly voice, like a wise older friend who is like, telling you these stories about these people but also making catty little asides like it's quite funny sometimes yeah and and also very wise at other times like the book makes me cry at certain like sections because it is very much about how difficult it is sometimes just to be in the world and uh it's just it's just so wonderful like yes i i agree it is a you don't feel the length necessarily because it is such a, a pleasing and pleasant sort of warm bath to lower yourself into. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I talked about this book recently on another megaphonic podcast, um, The Spouter Inn, where Chris and Suzanne take a, air quotes, great book, and they sort of go through what they think and they feel about it. And uh, it's not meant to sort of prop up the canon, but it is meant to sort of interrogate the canon. What they mean by great can mean canonical, and it can also mean they personally think it's great. And um, 
it, both are true for Middlemarch, but they sometimes do bonus episodes where they bring in a third person who has some sort of special relationship with the book they're looking at. So they, they recently did Middlemarch, and I had the great honor and pleasure of being invited on. So I talked about Middlemarch as a philosophical novel and my own personal relationship to it there. So I'm not going to repeat myself here, but mm-hmm. there are some things that I had on my mind to say that I ended up not saying because I could talk about this book for ages. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the problem with a 900-page book about all life and wisdom. And <laughs> mm-hmm. The vast palpitating web of life mm-hmm. of which you are part and you cannot hold yourself in isolation from it. And it's kind of like the anti-Ayn Rand. Like, it's nice. sort of putting forward the idea that all of us are interconnected and all of our actions have repercussions for the people around us. And you shouldn't be selfish. You should try and rise above the moral stupidity that all humans are sort of given to and, and try and think about other people and try not to be so selfish all of the time. And it's, uh, I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to even attempt a plot summary because there's so much. But I mean, if you haven't read it before, it's it's one of these projects that's going to take you weeks or perhaps even months to read because it is so big. Yeah, you have um, to know that you have like some time ahead of you. Yeah. It's not and something I would attempt now, for example. No. I mean, it is helped a little bit by the fact that it was released serially as like eight short books. So you can sort of think about it as eight 100-page books, and you can read one and then maybe take a couple of weeks off and then read the next. But it's still going to take you a long time. (laughs) Yeah. What do you feel about Victorian books in general? Love them. (laughs) Almost everything we've talked about here have been like contemporary. This is like the first older book we've done. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned before, I have a long history of bookish snobbishness. Mm -hmm. Snobbishness. I mean, me too. And I think I was 12 or 13 when I declared that I would only read Victorian novels. (laughs) This was after, uh, you know, like some Secret Garden, some... Anne of Green Gables, which I guess is Victorian, even though it's set in Canada. I mean, it's still, still Victorian. She's still our queen. <laughs> yeah. And uh, kind of mistakenly um, little women. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Oops. I was 12. <laughs> yeah. But I just, I, I loved them. Um, my brother one point came up with a great word um, saying that I love big dress movies. Mm-hmm. Which are usually based on big dress books. <laughs> yes. So the whole the whole Victorian genre, I'm a fan, and I I still love them. Um, until I had until I became a mom, I made a point to read at least one Dickens book a year. Um, I, I had to put that aside. <laughs> Do you remember how many Dickens books there are? There must be like twenty. Oh, there's a lot. Yeah. I have not read them all. No, that, um, that's a project. It's not like reading every Austin, which is quite feasible. Hang <laughs> like, on, I've got, um, yeah, I read all the Austins. And again, I thought, yeah, that's another one I erroneously thought was Victorian. That's Regency? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> early years, journalism, and early novels. Oh, there's not a bibliography? Oh. Apparently. Okay, you know what? Let's just, pr- Let's just pretend Charles Dickens doesn't exist. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's there's a bunch. There's a um, bunch. I read a bunch, not all of them. Yeah. My favorite is David Copperfield. Hmm. I haven't read that one. Uh, I really liked Our Mutual Friend, but I've only read like three. So. Yeah. I had a theory for a while that everyone has read three Charles Dickens books. Hmm. 
But then, you know, I read more. Yes. And of course, other people have also read more. <laughs> <laughs> and some people have read one or zero. So. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I also had a big thing for, let's just expand a little bit and say 19th century novels so we yes. can take in our Jane Austens and whatnot. And I also had a big thing for it. I can remember, though, I almost sometimes wonder about where this came from. Because when I was a teenager, when you were having your book snob moment when you were 12 or 13, Mm -hmm. I was reading, like, the worst fantasy novels you can imagine. (laughs) Like, really fun, entertaining ones, but, like, not high literary value. And it's it's fine. Like, there's a place in the world for books like that. Like, I'm now in a position where I'm like, I'm not going to look down my nose at that. But I was, you know, smart kid, top of my class. English is my best subject. So by the time I got 15 or 16, I was like, I should be reading serious novels. And I can remember I forced myself to try and read Wuthering Heights. And I did not see the appeal. (laughs) Yeah, no, I didn't read that one at that point. I think you and I have kind of talked about this before, just the two of us, but there there wasn't a lot of young adult literature available to us at the time. Certainly not the wealth that we have now. No. Oh, I'm so happy for today's kids. <laughs> there's mm-hmm. so much. Yeah, um, there's there's that gap when you're like a smart 14, 15 year old and like kids books are not enough. Yeah. Yeah. You're too old for like those little chapter books, like your babysitter clubs or whatever, mm-hmm. or, you know, your Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew. And you're not but you're not really old enough to get into, like, the real stuff. And that's why, like, I was reading, I guess, Victorian children's novels almost, you know? Mm-hmm. Or books, at least, that were aimed at younger people. And I like those. And they're, I hadn't found anything contemporary similar. That's probably yeah. why I stuck to them. Mm-hmm. Because even Jane Austen, even though she's not, like, a young... She's a very accessible writer, even now, so... I think people, well, people who don't like Jen Austen, I sometimes wonder if they don't realize that it's meant to be funny. <laughs> yeah. Every once in a while, somebody's like, oh, you know, Pride and Prejudice is so romantic. I'm like, what are you smoking? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Cool. Relating it to Middlemarch, like Middlemarch is like the most Victorian of Victorian novels. It's enormous. It's intellectually complex. The writing style itself, you know, have these long sentences. Um, it, it, you know, it unfolds at a stately pace. It's not in a hurry. And um, it's just a very different style than even like contemporary series literature today. Um, the echoes of, you know, modernism or even postmodernism, like our writing style is just different now. And thinking about what stylistically makes a Victorian novel so appealing to some of us. And I was afraid to like, I was afraid to go back to this because I've had trouble reading. Like, my brain kind of broke. And, like, this was a really hard book written in fairly challenging prose. And Mm -hmm. the fact that I got through it makes me feel good. Sure. Now, not for nothing, you've read it twice before. (laughs) True. Like, I I don't want to take away from the fact that you read 900 pages last month because that's still great. But it's not like you were coming at it cold. Uh And this is the kind of book that absolutely um, repays rereading. And I know that for people who make it through Middlemarch, they might be like, well, that's done. I climbed Everest. Why would I climb Everest a second time? (laughs) But on the second time, you sort of you see so much that you didn't get the first time. George Eliot, I think, must have been one of the most intelligent people who ever lived. Like she creates this complex thing. And once you know the whole shape of it and you're back 
on page 30, and Casalban is like saying something which absolutely fits in with what he does like 300 pages later. And it's like, oh my God, the seeds were planted even then. <laughs> it's amazing. She's just in total command of her, of her creation the entire time. And I love George Eliot. I, she's one of my heroes now. Mm-hmm. I can't believe I never really thought about this until recently, but I was like, no, like, Middlemarch is uh, one of the high accomplishments of, of human creation. Yes. But like George Eliot herself is such a fascinating person. She was a non-believer. She lived with a man who she wasn't married to. And this is because he was married to someone else. And for some reason, a divorce wasn't possible. But super hard back then. In yeah, general. yeah. Um, they were estranged and they did not live together. Um, but he couldn't get divorced for her from her. So nowadays it would be just be normal. Like it would be like, oh, like Marianne Evans, which is George Eliot's sort of air quotes real name. It would just be his second wife. And like they were together for decades and she was basically a stepmother to his children. She nursed one of them through like his final illness and basically he died in her arms and it's quite touching. And this happened when she was writing Middlemarch. <laughs> um, and she was, you know, from a lower class family, um, and she had to stop going to school when her mother died to help take care of her father, but she was just an autodidact. Uh, she was the first person to translate Spinoza's ethics into English. She's just phenomenal. Just in her spare time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, and, and this book is just filled with such human spirit and such a honest intellectual inquiry into what it might mean to aspire to be a good person. Um, And I love it. I almost wonder, like, I've taught this. Well, I I didn't put it on the syllabus. I've never been in a position where I could make a syllabus. But back when I was in grad school, I would TA for courses. And there was a course in narratology, which was a first-year English course, where this was on the syllabus. And that seemed like quite a thing to throw out a bunch of 18 and 19 year olds. Yeah, I'm a bit surprised <laughs> it would be assigned because it's just, it's like the size of a whole semester's reading. <laughs> well, we, we did spend the entire semester reading it. <laughs> um, everything else in the syllabus was either a novella or a short story. Um, yeah, it'd have to be. So the expectation was that you would basically read about 70 or 80 pages of Middlemarch every week. <laughs> Which, that's doable, you know. Yeah. Um, but I'm just like, I'm thinking about what it would be like to read this outside of a school setting, which was your experience of it. Um, what, yeah. Do you remember why you picked it up? Was it just because it had such a reputation? Yeah, well, I mean, I was, you know, reading, again, a big book snob, just only reading great canon literature. Um, and that was, like you said, Neverest. It was a mountain to climb. It was one that I knew I was going to have to deal with. Mm-hmm. It was summer. Yeah, just, you know, long summer days in the backyard in the hammock, living at my parents' house. Do you remember Dorothea very well? She, closest thing the book has to a main character. I um, I remember parts, obviously, um, better than others. But I, most of, I don't remember specifics of this book very well, but I, I definitely remember the impression. And Dorothea was like, yeah. I loved yeah. her. <laughs> well, I, 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 the reason I ask is because I kind of assumed you would and that you yeah. also might have identified with her somewhat. Definitely, yeah. No, I was definitely reading A Kindred Spirit. Yeah, like she's a very intelligent, uh, ardent 
young woman who wants to make a positive change in the world somehow. And she just doesn't have very many avenues open to her because of her situation and the time she lives in. Like, like the book was published in the 1870s, but it's set in the 18, late 1820s, early 1830s. And um, so, you know, she's a, she's an upper class lady, but her education has been fairly limited and she doesn't like, the society she lives in basically is such that she doesn't really have any opportunity to do things on her own. So she decides the best way that she can make a positive difference in the world is by marrying a great man and helping him in his project. Like she dreams about marrying John Milton as he's losing his eyesight and basically <laughs> being like his secretary and taking his dictation yeah. and, and helping him. And like, that's miserable. If you know anything about John Milton, he was an absolute nightmare to be around. <laughs> I wonder um, if, like, her inability to marry the man she wanted to marry and live a normal life that way might be one of the things that led her to tell this kind of story. Yeah. You know, about the restrictions on women. I mean, I'm not sure she felt them in general, but she so blatantly rebelled against them in her own life. Mm -hmm. her, her hair being George Eliot, you mean? Yes. Yes, that's what I figured. Yeah, because, of course... Dorothea would not do, I don't think, do something as wild as live with a married man. By the end of the book, when the second man she marries, she absolutely does. But this is basically her arc is like learning how and when to rebel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's an important lesson for all of us. <laughs> absolutely. And, uh, you know, figuring out what the price of it is going to be and if you're doing it for a good reason, absolutely. Um, but not being bound by convention for sure. Um, I mean, George, George Henry Lewis was George Eliot's partner. And as far as I can tell, they did have like a really admirable, uh, admirable and wonderful partnership. Like he was her first reader. He was the one who first encouraged her to start writing novels because he was like, I think you'd be good at this. Um, <laughs> she sometimes needed a lot of encouragement and he always gave it. Um, it really seemed like a partnership of like intellectual equals two people who were really excited to share ideas um, which is just lovely. <laughs> like, and that's one reason the first marriage in the book absolutely fails is because she's a young woman who's very intelligent and has been kind of, um, underwatered. <laughs> that's not a good <laughs> metaphor. She hasn't been given the intellectual nourishment that she desires. There so she go. marries a man who she thinks is very intelligent and he might be, but he's absolutely closed off to the idea of sharing his thoughts and feelings with his new wife. And also he's not at all interested in her thoughts and feelings. And so it just becomes this terrible prison of a marriage that she kind of has to endure. I wonder how many women have lived that life. Oh, many, I'm sure. Like yeah. even now, think about how many women like wind up marrying their professors or an older man that, you know, when they're 25 seems brilliant. And yeah. I mean, I know I fell into that trap, not with my husband, but previous relationships. Yeah. And I mean, the hope is, it's kind of like you see someone who's so much, you feel at the mm -hmm. moment that they're so much sort of more intelligent and, and experienced than you. But the hope is, is that they will like let you join in and over time you will grow in your own intelligence and experience and become more and more of an equal. And it turns out a lot of men don't want an equal. <laughs> yeah. They want a woman who's smart, but not smarter than them. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Not all men, hashtag whatever. Not all men. But. Well, this, <laughs> dear Will Ladislaw in this book is not like that. He's absolutely in awe of Dorothea, and that's what yeah. makes me love him. So. <laughs>
All right. So I guess we should we should wrap it up. Yeah, I need to go to my baby. Oh, baby. Well, so if you if you can do the wrap up stuff, <laughs> yeah. you know, the whole go to Twitter, etc. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you can say goodbye to the listeners. Oh, I'm going to say goodbye. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye listeners. Love you. <laughs> night night. Sleep tight. <laughs> bye Emily. Thank bye, you for bye. joining us. Thank you. Bye. And I will sign off solo. Thank you listeners for joining us on Dear Reader. Um, I hope you've enjoyed your time with me and Emily as we talk about the various things we've been reading. You can find us on Twitter at Dear Reader FM. And uh, if you want to help the podcast grow, you could give us a review on iTunes. That apparently helps a lot. I don't know. It's all mysterious to me. Uh, we are part of the Megaphonic Podcast Network. Megaphonic.fm is the website. And there's lots of wonderful shows, including a couple of other bookish ones. This Powder Inn, which we mentioned briefly, where they talk about great books. And By the Bywater, which is a Tolkien podcast. Uh, and there is a Patreon where you can support the, every show on the network, uh, patreon.com slash megaphonic, and uh, you get access to a Slack where you can chat with myself and the other podcast people, and a Patreon feed where bonus bits from various shows all across the network get posted. Bloops, if you will. All right. Enough rambling from me. Good night. Sleep tight. See you next time.